By the time you get to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, there's uh, a lot of water that's gone under the bridge at this point in the history of the world. God's made the world. God has called a man named Adam, or rather Abraham, excuse me. After Adam's sin, he called a man named Abraham to be a chosen group of people, to be the father of a chosen group of people that would later become, we would know them as the children of Israel or the nation of Israel later on. Israel, his, his, uh, his, um, uh, the, the nation that comes out of, out of his uh, family line, it becomes enslaved in a country called Egypt. God then miraculously, after hundred years, hundred couple hundred years of slavery, He actually miraculously uh, frees them from that slavery. Y'all know this story, right? Moses, well, Moses doesn't do anything. He just takes the stick up in the air. But God, He parts the waters so that they can cross over on dry land. Then, of course, after they're out of Israel, Israel is out, or out of Egypt rather. Israel is out wandering the desert. And in, that one, in those wanderings, God reveals to His people His law. He says, this is the way you should live. He makes a covenant with them to say, you are my people, I am your God, and this is how we're going to operate. And they agree to that. He also reveals in the book of Exodus, uh, y'all probably know if you've read the Bible at all and listened in Sunday school, you probably know the first half of Exodus. Because about verse chapter uh, 20 is where the, the law gets laid down. But then that last part of it, we kind of get a little fuzzy on because that's about the building plans. It's really what it is. It lays out in exquisite detail, like exactly how big things need to be, what the materials need to be. But what are these building plans? It's actually a building that God tells God's people to build because God says, I want you to build this place where I'm going to show up. I'm going to live there. I'm going to dwell among you. But I want you to build this building because... I need a place to live. I need a place to live. And if you go to the end of the book of Exodus, I told you to go to or rather Leviticus chapter 1. I don't know how your Bible is. Maybe you have to turn back the page or maybe it's the top of your page. On my Bible, it's the top of the same page. If you go to the last, about few verses of Exodus chapter 40, look at verse 34. After everything is done, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That tabernacle was that thing that they had built, that God had given very specific plans. And it says that once that was done, they did what they did what God told them to do, and God, He says there that His glory filled the tabernacle. Verse 35 says, And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward into all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, they journeyed not till the day was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, and in the sight of the house of the Lord throughout all of their journeys. Kind of sounds like the end of the story. They're about to talk, they're about to walk, they're about to journey through the desert, and God's going to be with them. That's kind of what it sounds like. You're just listening to that. And then there's Leviticus. I won't ask you this question, just in your mind, answer, so don't answer out loud. How many of you been reading through the Bible and you hit on Leviticus? And it's like you're plowing a field and then you hit a big old rock. Like, what in the world did I just run into? What is this thing? 
Because it's that part of the Bible that if you've read it, and many of us have because we have read through the Bible, but it's that part of the Bible that you don't really read. You just kind of, your eyes line, line over. Again, can't say amen, go ahead and say out, because I'm just telling you that's what I do. I'm like, oh, okay, let's move on, let's move on. I say, okay, you know, I've got to kill this, and this is bleeding, and this blood goes here, and this, this is all this kind of weird stuff. Let me move on, let me keep going. But we all have, we probably have read, in fact, it's that kind of thing where you probably read law books and software agreements that made more sense to us. You know, it's that kind of thing. But I want to give you just in the few minutes that I have with you, the truth of the matter is that this book, the book of Leviticus, was given to us by the Holy Spirit and ultimately given to Israel and then by thinking us to give us a very important message about God. That message is that God is holy, but God is so holy, He had to provide a very special way for us to get to Him, to access Him. Now, I'm just going to scratch the surface. I'm just going to look at six chapters very briefly, scratching the surface, give you a bird's eye view of these six chapters. There's five sacrifices that are referenced in these six chapters, five sacrifices. But I want you to, as we look at this, again, we're not going to go into a lot of details. So if y'all are already turning me off, they're going, oh my goodness, where is this, this is a detailed Bible study. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. We're going to scratch the surface, okay? But I want you to understand two very important truths. I'm going to give them to you in turn. I'm going to go start with number one. Are y'all with me? Two truths. Number one, first truth. The first truth you have to understand is that your sin is so much more worse, so much worse than you can even imagine. First truth, your sin, my sin, the sins of every man or woman that's ever lived is much worse than you can ever imagine. Sin, first of all, disrupts that relationship with God. Make sure you understand this. I've already given you some of this, but I want to remind you of this. Remember who God is. He creates the world. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Did he have to create this world? No, he did not. But he wanted to. It was his choice. He chose to do it. He not only wants that, he wants a relationship with us. Even when after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, he knew they had sinned, but what does he do? He looks for them. He's seeking them out. Where are you? They're hiding. And he's looking for them. He's seeking for them. That's what God does. And then even after the whole world has turned against him and he has to destroy the world except for Noah and his family, even after that, what does God do? He goes and finds a man named Abraham and he makes a covenant with him and he says, I want you people, your, your, your people rather than the people that come from you, your, your lineage to come from you, I want to use them to save the whole world, to let the whole world know that I am their God and I want to love them through you. I want you to know and I'm going to make a covenant with them. And he goes and then he redeems Israel out of that. And he then rescues them when they get in trouble. Which, by the way, doesn't stop in Exodus. They keep getting in trouble and keep getting in trouble and keep getting in trouble. And God rescues them and he rescues them and he rescues them. So God wants a relationship with his people, with his creation. And furthermore, can I add to this? Israel, the nation that he's talking about, they've been redeemed by God. They have been rescued by God. They are in covenant with God. They have obeyed God. In fact, I'm not going to make you read it, but if you were to go in Exodus chapter 40, it talks about all those instructions God has given in Exodus. 
And it said, time after time, and they did as the Lord commanded. And they did as the Lord commanded. And they weren't any more obedient or less obedient than you or me. I fail God all the time. They fail God all the time. But I'm trying to get you to see for just a moment that at least in this moment, they were being obedient to God. But look with me back to the passage I already read in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35. There's a few things that I... I just read it very quickly. I don't know if you paid attention to it or not, but I want you to focus on it. Verse 35. Here they've done everything. God comes down in verse 34. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. I don't know if y'all are picking up what's happening here, but listen. They built this. They built a house for God. God comes and He dwells in that house. And Moses is literally standing at the front door and he can't get in. He can't. God's there and he says, you can't come in here. You can't come in here. You can't come in here because there's something wrong. There's something in the way. Therefore, no worship can happen. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 2, we see that there is a, there's a, there's a sacrifice that's provided there to worship God. It is the burnt offering. They give prescription on how to do that. But Moses can't even do that burnt offering. He can't get into worship. In Leviticus chapter 2, there is an offering of thanksgiving called the meat offering. There's no thanksgiving that can be given to God. In Leviticus chapter 3, there's an offering that is an offering of praise, uh, the, the peace offering. There's no praise that they can be given to God. What is the problem here? Is God the problem? Is God being a jerk? Is God saying, no, you can't come in? Is it being like a rebellious teenager locking the door and saying, you can't come in here? Is that what he's doing? Let me just go ahead and tell you, God's never the problem. God is not the reason Moses can't get into this tabernacle. God is not the reason that worship can't be offered. God is not the reason that thanksgiving and praise cannot be offered. A quote from you, I read a read from you from Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 12, where it says that the Lord's hand is not shortened, but it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy, but it cannot hear. God, God's just fine. God can do what he needs to do. He can hear, he can do. The rest of the verse says, but your iniquities, your sins, your transgressions, the things that you have done wrong, they have separated between you and God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It is impossible. And I want you all to understand this, and I don't know if I can ever completely communicate the weight of what I'm trying to communicate to you here, but it is literally impossible for you to enjoy the presence of God for you to enjoy the blessings of God, you personally, I'm talking about you all sitting here, not just Moses, Moses for sure, but us too. We cannot enjoy the presence or the blessings of God because of the sin that we have in us. Paul writes it this way, that we are aliens from the commonwealth. We are strangers from the covenants of promise. We have no hope and we are without God in this world. Why? Because of our sins. Our sin, those things that the Bible says we ought not do, we do them. Those things, those attitudes of our heart that we ought not have, we have them. Those desires that are wrong, that are twisted, that are perverse, we have them. And those things make it so that we cannot have a relationship with God. But furthermore, sin not only puts, disrupts that relationship, it, just, it damages everything it touches. 
sin's pollution. I think I think we we, we under under appreciate under under appreciate the damage that sin does. When I do my sin, it, it just hurts me. You know, that's, that's the way we think. It's just my. You don't know about it. It's not stopping. It's just it's just the way I'm made. You know, I've got Irish in my heritage, or whatever it is. If we want, whatever we want to blame it on. You know, we got something in our background. That's all. That's just the way I was raised. It don't hurt nobody. But you have to understand that the sin that we commit, the sin that Israel committed, which is the same stuff that we do, their sin was so bad that even the sacrifice that they would offer in order to worship God, I'm not talking about the person who was offering the sacrifice, I'm talking about the sacrifice, it was, had to be purified. If you would look at me in Leviticus chapter 1, in Leviticus chapter 1, he's outlining a, a burnt offering, a specific kind of offering called burnt offering. But if you look at me in chapter 1, I'm going to skip you all the way down to verse 13. And he says there that he, talking about the priest, he shall wash the inwards, the inwards, inwards, and the legs with water. And the priest shall bring, shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar. But the point is that he has to wash the inside of this thing because there's, there's some. Yeah, some of y'all that put your hand if you know this better than I do, that there's some stuff in there you don't want in there. And you've got to get it out. You see that? He actually says, before we offer this to God, we're going to get the garbage out of there. We're going to get the junk out of there because there's purification. Not, by the way, we're not even talking about the sinner. We're talking about the sacrifice. That has to be purified. Even if you go over to chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to go over to chapter 4 and go to verse 5 with me. Oh, yeah, chapter 4 and verse 5. This is another sacrifice that had to be done. This was the uh, this was the um, uh, the sin offering, which was in, in done just to take away the sin. That's what, that was the whole other of the impurities of the sin. You go to with me in verse five of chapter four. He says there that the priest that is anointed, he's got to have the priest has already got to be purified, so he's already been done. He's going to take the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. Now he's got the blood of the animal that's being sacrificed. And what is he going to do in verse 6? He's going to dip his finger in that blood, and he's going to sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord and before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the three incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle, and to pour all the blood of the book at the bottom of the altar, the burnt offering. This idea of sprinkling the blood was simply to purify. We've already purified the sacrifice. We've got the junk out of the sacrifice. Now we're taking the blood and literally purifying the sanctuary where the sacrifice is going to be offered. And by the way, all this is done to purify the sinner. Do you see that? I hope y'all are with I know, that, I know I'm giving you a lot of detail here, but I need you to understand that there's a whole lot of mess going on. Because you've got to do this stuff because that sin not only messes you up, defiles you, it defiles everybody and everything around you. In fact, sin is so damaging, sin is so polluting, that the Bible here in Leviticus requires, out of five sacrifices, three of them are for the specific, explicit purpose of dealing with different aspects of sin. In chapter 1, you've got the burnt offering, which is literally just an offering to put a substitute to be consumed to reopen the path to God. Sin has actually made it so damaging that I don't even have a path to God. So I need a burnt offering to even open that path. But now that it's open, there's a second sacrifice in chapter 4, this sin offering, because I have got to have, I've got defilement in me. I've got to get the defilement away from me. Yeah, I've got a path to God, but I can't get to him because I can't get into his presence. 
And then you need the third offering, which is the guilt offering in chapter 5, which is to repair the damage that sin does. Because you can give all the offerings you want, you can give all these offerings, but if you cause damage because of your sin, it says you've got to go make that right. You, you see how your sin does? Let me, let me try to make this bring this home for you, because I, I don't... Uh, I want to make sure y'all understand what I'm talking about. This is not some esoteric thing back in the Old Testament. This is for you and me right now. When I sin, let's make a real specific sin. I speak to my children in a way that is unbecoming of a parent who loves his, a father who loves his children. Maybe I holler at them, maybe I curse at them, maybe I say uh, terrible things towards them. Again, y'all don't say amen, you can say out whichever way you want to do it. I've said things in the way I shouldn't have said to my children. When I do that, that's not just Matthew's sin. You know what that does? That puts a breach between me and God. That means that Matthew's prayers are not going to be answered. That means that Matthew cannot have a relationship with God the way he ought to have. Furthermore, not only am I polluted because of my sin, I'm just polluting my children. I put thoughts, I put messages, I put things in their mind that that's the way that they are supposed to treat other people. And what's going to happen? I was going to say little Johnny, but we know my son's name is Steve. So little Jude, little Jude is going to go around and he's going to say things to other people thinking that's just the way daddy does because that's the way it's supposed to do. This is what the pollution is. And you know what's more? It's not, the, the damage is not done whenever those words come out of my mouth. You know what the damage is done? That damage continues to damage. That damage continues to damage. And it's my job to make reparation, to make it right, to fix it, to overcome that. And whatever that may mean, that may look like a million different things, but I need to overcome that and make it right. That's what sin's damage does. It damages everything that it touches. And I'm afraid that some of us think that the way to fix our sin is do religious activity. Oh, I, I feel bad about what I did last week. I'm going to come to church. Oh, I'm better now. Did you see that the sanctuary was polluted by sin? You come into here, all you're doing is spreading your germs around. <laughs> and it ain't just you, by the way. There's a hundred other people just like you. And we're all spreading our sin germs around. When you come in here and you're trying to make it right with religious activity, and in fact, when we do this wrong, I won't make you go over there, but in Leviticus chapter 10, there are prescribed, rather, this whole, chapter, whole book, there are prescribed methods for how you're supposed to worship. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's two priests. They are sons of Aaron. And they offer what's called strange fire. Basically, they do it the wrong way. You know what God does? Kills them on the spot. Kind of dangerous game to play is what I'm trying to get you to see. That when we have our sin, it pollutes us and it damages everything it touches. If you want your worship to be acceptable, you better do something about your sin. And let me tell you, the more you try to do, you're like a little kid with an ice cream with his fingers. And you're trying to get cleaned up. And what you're doing, everything you're touching, you're making it worse. Everything you're touching, you're getting ice cream all over yourself. You're making a mess. That's what you're doing with your sin. You're damaging everything that you touch. Finally, sin demands a very, very, very high price. The sacrifice itself, if you were to look in, in, in chapter 1, you would see that the sacrifice itself had to be very valuable. In chapter 1, uh, verses 3, 4, and 3, 
chapter 1, verse 3, excuse me. In chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about it needs to be a, a, a book, I believe is what it is. Let me actually look there, so I'm not lying to you. In 1, chapter 3, I think it's called a, uh, it's a male of the herd, talking about cattle there. And then in chapter 4, it calls it a bullock. The point of this is, it's got to be a cow, a cattle, some kind of cattle. That's the point. And even today, if I were to ask some of y'all, if you had a, if you had a cow at your house, at your, at your farm, that'd be kind of a pricey uh, sacrifice, even today, by today's standards. But back in that day, this would have been, I mean, these are nomadic people. This is a primary source of food, both from milk as well as meat. This would have been a primary source of food. So for them to have to give a cow, oh my goodness, that's a high price. Not only that, it's at a, in, you could also give a sheep or a goat, but you still have the same problem. These are high-priced items. Yes, they are very high-priced items. These are things that would have generally been considered a form of currency, a form of value. If you'd have had more than a handful of cows, you would have been a wealthy man or a woman if you'd have had that. And for you to have to give one of these goats or sheep or cows up, this is a very high-priced item for you. But it's not done. It can't just be high-priced. It's got to be perfect. Because in, in, in later on, in, in some of these places where it's describing these, these, uh, these cows and these sheep and these goats, they have to be without blemish, it says. Without blemish. Now, again, I've never really raised any animals, so I don't know this myself to, to be how this exactly works, but I can imagine there's a little bit of, if I can say it this way, kind of luck of the draw about what comes out when that, baby, when that animal's born. You can't help that it's got a blemish on it. But you can't completely help it. Furthermore, if it does, if it's perfect when it's born, there's a lot of work to maintain its perfection. The point is that these, these things are supposed to be without blemish, and they only had a few of these things to begin with, a few of these cows to begin with, and they had to find the perfect one. And then maintain that until it's time to actually give the sacrifice. And here's the other thing. They're not just leaving that sacrifice to let the priest borrow it for a few days, or maybe get a little milk off of it. That's not what we're talking about here. This blood said that cow had to die. And furthermore, there's nothing that not just dies, we're going to butcher it and put some meat up. No, they're going to the burn offer. You know what that was? Literally put the whole thing on the altar and it's consumed in fire. This is where I hurt some of y'all's feelings. I take, go to your bank account and we withdraw two or $3,000 out of your bank account. We're just going to put it in a pot we're going to light on fire. That's about like what we're talking about here. That, that, I don't know. I don't know about y'all. Maybe y'all are billionaires and I don't know it, but that, that hurts my feelings just to think about it right now. Uh, the, even the concept of like burning value all, all completely. That's what they had to do. The fact is that the sin that we commit demands an exorbitant price. I like the way that J.C. Rowell describes this. I'm going to read this to you. Listen to what he says. This is a man who's a preacher from about a uh, about 100, 150 years ago, he says, Terribly black must that guilt be, for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be, which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony on Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As heavy as my sin is, as dirty as the tilt of your sin is, as costly of a price as your sin requires, the second truth, remember I told you I had truth, the second truth, 
is God's grace is so much greater. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin reigned into death, even so might sin reign into righteousness and to the eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The second truth is that God's God is more gracious than you can imagine. Very briefly, if I can, just to, to, to make these points very briefly so I can get to my, my application for you very quickly. Please understand that God chose to dwell with these people. I already read that passage to you in Exodus chapter 40. He didn't do this because they were so good or so worthy. He did this because He is so good. He chose to live with these people. In fact, He even guided these people. You heard, heard me read through that. Before. He said He was going to guide them through the desert. They could follow Him. He was going to be with them every step of the way. He promised to do that. He even speaks to them. In fact, one of the interesting aspects of Leviticus from chapter 1 to chapter 7 and then beginning again in chapter 11 to the end of the chapter, there is more words directly spoken by God Himself than almost any other, I think, any other book in the Bible. If you were to put the, the words of God directly spoken, like you have the words of Jesus in red in some, some Bibles, if you were to put the words of God in red, the book of Leviticus would be one of the reddest books that you would ever have. God brings this word to them. He speaks to them. But you know one of the things about God? He does this even today. He's not done speaking because it says that God in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past to the prophets, uh, by the fathers, uh, to the prophets, to the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. God loves you and he wants you to know how to be with him. So he is figuring out, he's, he's making it plain, plain to us. He's Telling it out, I want you to be with me, and I'm going to dwell with you. In fact, the last days, all the way to the end of time, Revelation chapter 21 spells out that God's tabernacle is going to be with men. We are going to not just be in a perfect place, but we're going to get to dwell with God for eternity. And we're going to be able to do that because He loves us and He's made that way for us. And He's done that through something we call a substitutionary sacrifice. He has provided a way, if you were to go with me in Leviticus chapter 1, look at me in verse 4, where he talks about what, the, what needs to be done about this burnt sacrifice. He says, he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. The idea of putting the hand on the head, by the way, they do this in, uh, in Leviticus 4 for the sin offering, putting the hand on the head of that offering. When you put that on there, you're identifying that that animal is in my place. That is for me. That is for me. And furthermore, not only is it a substitution, but it is also available to all. One of the things I didn't point out to you, but I'll tell you now, in Leviticus chapter 1, there are three different possible offerings you can offer. You can offer a cow, you can offer a sheep, or you can offer a bird. So why would you do that? If you got the money and you got a cow, you bring a cow. You got the money and you only have a sheep, you bring a sheep. If you're poor and you don't have that, you got a bird, you bring a bird. The point is that everybody is available to everybody. Everyone has a substitute available to them. And you know what God does with those sacrifices? This may not be much for y'all, but it does something for me. I'm, I could do the same thing in chapter four, but I'm just going to look in verse chapter one. Look with me. There's three offerings. Remember, I told you there's three different ways to do this offering. You can do a cow, a, a sheep, or a bird. Let's look at each one of those. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 9. 
chapter 1 and verse 9. He says after there, he says he's going to clean the inwards and wash it with water because the priest is going to burn it all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. You can go all the way down to verse 13. You see the last phrase there, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And you can see the last thing in verse 17, of a sweet savor unto the Lord. The point is that sweet savor is simply saying that this smells good to God. It's going around territory. It's what it means. He likes it. It's good. He accepts it. In chapter 4, it talks about how not only does sweet savor, savor, but those sins are forgiven because of those offerings that are offered. He provided that sacrifice. He provided a way for me to have my sins paid for. He provided that. And He provided that sacrifice for me so that He could be with us. I know my time's running out, but I got, y'all got to hear this. Listen, God loved the world so much that He only gave, that he gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Y'all know that part, right? John 3, 16. But listen to this. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Do you understand what I'm trying to get you to see? Is that God is so gracious. Yeah, He knows your sin's terrible. And He knows it takes a sacrifice. Yeah, He knows you need a substitute. And you know what He did? He gave it. God is not trying to kill you. God is not trying to condemn you. God is not trying to hurt you. God is not trying to damn you. Whatever picture you have of God, He's not a big mean ogre in the sky saying, Oh, I got Him now. No, what He did was He sent His only begotten Son to die for you. He made it not to condemn you, but that you can be saved. That's what He has offered to you. And that sacrifice that is given, yes, we're talking about some animals in Leviticus here, but that ultimate sacrifice those animals look forward to was a perfect and blameless sacrifice offered in my place. A high priest that was touched by my infirmities and my weakness, he was in all points tempted like as I am, yet without sin. He was perfect. And he was pure and costly and accepted. All of that to get to this point. And I'm done. Just another minute. I'm done. Y'all hang with me. Are y'all good? Y'all okay? Just need another minute and I'll be done. I promise you. But y'all got to hear me on this. I set all that up to try to give you this. Because I hope it will help you. If your sin is so bad, you can't even imagine how bad it is. But God is so good, you can't imagine how good it is. I want to encourage you to embrace the grace of God. That's my invitation. This whole message is literally just set up to try to give you an invitation to embrace God's grace for you. Some of you need to embrace God's grace for you and your sin. Some of you don't understand how good God's grace is because you don't see your sin as evil. I want to tell you, I don't hate you. I don't hate a person in this room. I don't hate a person that's walking. I don't hate a person in it. Well, I should take that back. I got some trouble with some problems. I don't want to lie here saying I got some trouble with some people I'm working on. Uh, God's working through me on that. But it's like one or two people. I name their names. Y'all understand me, right? But let me tell you, if, if you're if you're an atheist, or you're dabbling in some sexual sin. Or you're, you're cheating on your husband or your wife, or you're struggling with some kind of depression, or whatever. That, I don't have anything against you. I don't, I don't hate you. I don't. I promise you, I don't. But I need you to understand that those sins, 
that are besetting you that you don't want me to know about, you don't want anybody in this church to know about, those sins going you to hell. And you need to understand that your sin is evil and wicked. And the minute you see that and understand that God is so good, you can embrace His grace and say, sin is terrible, but my God is good. I want you to take that, that grace that God has given to you and just grab a hold of it and say, God, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. That's why I need you. But you love me, you say you do, and I want to take you. And I want to take you by faith. You've got to trust Him. Throw yourself on His mercy and He will save you today. Brothers and sisters, some of you that are Christians, I think some of y'all have forgotten this truth too. There's a time when you put your faith in Jesus and you've been saved and you're going to heaven. We got that, we got that look forward to, but you're, you're struggling with your own sin. And you say, well, God, God must not like me right now. I want you to know God loves you. And if He loves you before you got saved, He definitely loves you now. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, man, you don't know how much God loves you. But what you have to understand is your sin is terrible. Your sin is awful. Your sin is, it, 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 it separates you from God. But God loves you so much, He has made a way, even for you Christians, to go and grab a hold of His grace and come to Him with that perfect sacrifice. Christian, would you actually? No, I'm not asking you to get saved again. I'm not one of those people. I don't believe you lose your salvation. I don't believe that. But we can lose the joy of our salvation. And I want you to come and just grab a hold of Jesus and say, I love you, Lord. My sin's bad, but you're better. Why don't you do that? Won't you come to Him? But I also want to ask you to embrace grace for your family. Some of you may have lost a baby to a miscarriage or an abortion. You may say, I don't know what's happened to that little baby. I don't know. I don't have an answer. But I believe in a good God. He's got mercy that you can't even understand. I believe in a God who loves people that we don't even understand. So you're struggling through illness and pain. And I can't explain why you're suffering with it right now. I believe that God is so good that He loves you that He will help you in a way that we can't imagine. Sure, you've got wayward children, a son or a daughter that's not living the way that they ought to. They don't even talk to you anymore. I believe in a God who loves them. If you embrace His grace for them, why don't you do that? Some of you have ruined your own marriage because of your unfaithfulness. Maybe it's something that happened in the past. Maybe it's actually something in the present right now. I believe in a God who can repair even stuff like that. Why don't you embrace His grace? Some of you have been terrible parents. Some of you have been terrible children to your parents. God can repair that too. We also need to embrace God's grace for our community. We've got a county here, and I don't believe Rockingham County is unique in this, unfortunately, but we live here full of drug and sex and screen-addicted people. God loves those people. God can help those people. Y'all might be some of those people and help you too. But we need to trust God for those things. We can be as mad as we want to get mad about them. We can be as upset about them. We can look down our nose at them. We can do whatever we want to. But I want you to know there's a God in heaven. Yes, those things are bad, but there's a God in heaven who loves those people. We need to trust that God's grace 
for a nation like the United States of America that kills children in the womb and gets mad at even the threat of not being able to see it anymore. But we need to be mad if we want to get about it. There's a God in heaven that loves every one of those little babies, every every one of those little mothers, loves every one of those abortion doctors, loves every one of those politicians, loves every one of those activists on both sides of those equations. He loves those people, and I want to embrace His grace for those people too. All that means is I can't fix it, but I know a God who can. I want to embrace grace for a nation who can't keep our children safe in schools. I know we're in gun territory. And I only gun it to myself. And I don't know what the right answer is on that front. But I trust God to love those children who died in Texas. Those people who died in that supermarket in New York. And all those other mass shootings that have happened. I trust God love those people enough. I trust God. I want you to embrace God's grace enough. And I know I, some of y'all are going to hate me after I say this, but if they threaten your Second Amendment rights, you're going to be trusting God to have enough grace to embrace His grace. But if you, need, you want God's love more than you want your gun. I don't get many amens on that, and that's okay. We need to embrace God's grace for denominations. Southern Baptist Convention, as well as my beloved Independent Fundamental Baptist, we've been plagued by sexual and spiritual abuse in pulpits and in various ministries. If you don't know what I'm talking about, thank the Lord. But if you would agree for a few minutes, I'm talking about new news, last couple weeks. Southern Baptist Convention, there's been very credible accusations against very, very visible men in this in this convention. And again, not unique to this convention, unfortunately. It's all over. All I'm trying to say is that sin is bad, but I trust God's grace to still work through congregations like this one to love people and to change lives. I trust God on that. Would you embrace His grace for that? Would you embrace His grace for those who are far from God, those who hurt you, those who you don't even understand why they believe the way they believe, why they do what they do? Would you embrace God's grace for that? Because it's never too late, and it's never a lost cause if God's involved. Never too late. I believe that. I mean that. After, after this world, and we're, we're going to invite you. Hey, y'all ready to stand so we can get you all heading in the right direction. Because I need y'all to listen to this and do that. We're going to be done. At the end of all this, we're going to die. I'm going to die. And after that, I can do nothing. Even before that, I really can't change my eternal outcome. It's only Jesus that can do it. But after that, I've got no control. It's all in God's hands. And you know what I believe? I believe in a God who loves us so much, it's going to shock us. It's scandalous how much He loves you. He loves you so much that no matter what, He will embrace you. Why don't you embrace Him? Won't you come? Won't you come? Lord, please.
Move among these people. Help them to see that you love them. Help them to see that you care for them. Help them to see that you are their only hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.